You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. All right, so let's start this morning with a short pop quiz. This is a two-question theology quiz. I'm going to say two sentences here, and I want you guys to fill in the blanks. All right, I think this is pretty simple. Here we go. Here's the first. God saves us by grace through faith in... I can't hear you. <laughs> Hold on, what is it? This is okay, another trick question. Okay, here, ready? God saves us by grace through faith in Jesus. There we go. All right, here's question number two. Once we put our faith in Jesus, God, by His Spirit, begins the work of conforming us into the image of there we go, Jesus, good, amen. If, if you're here this morning and you are newer to church, and if you have any questions, if you have any questions, usually, you know, a good, a good guess is Jesus, right, as the answer, right? It's, uh, we, we do know, the Bible teaches us that our lives as Christians, in our lives as Christians, God is continuing the good work that he began in us, Philippians 1.6, we saw that a few weeks ago. The good work that God began in us, he continues by conforming us into the image of Jesus. He is progressively, slowly but surely, making us more and more like Jesus, and we are called as Christians to be like Jesus, all right? Does every Christian in the room agree with that? We are called to be like Jesus. Should we show our hands so we're we, okay? We're called to be like Jesus. All right, so what about verses like this? 1 Corinthians 4, 16. This is Paul speaking, and he says, I urge you, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and fellow child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Or 2 Timothy 1.3, when Paul tells Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. And then later in that letter, as an encouragement to Timothy, Paul says, you have, Timothy, followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, Paul's saying. Paul, Paul says later in, in this letter to the Philippians, in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, brothers, join in imitating me. He says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So fair question, right? Are we supposed to be like Jesus or like Paul? The key 
is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. This is the key to the answer. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Which means we are called, church, to be like Jesus and to be like Paul when Paul is like Jesus. And when it comes to the ways of Paul that we find in the New Testament, Paul is being like Jesus. Paul models for us in the pages of the New Testament Christ's likeness. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is an example of Christ that we should follow. And that includes the way he's talking here in the introduction of this letter. It includes the personal update that he gives us here in Philippians 1. And so we should ask, what is that? What is the example of Paul here in Philippians 1? And just overall, like, what is the example of the Apostle Paul overall? That's a, a good question that we should have clarity on, right? If we're, if we're supposed to imitate Paul, which the Bible clearly says we, we should, if we're supposed to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, then we need to know what Paul was like. That makes sense, right? Um, several years ago, I was at a conference, and I, I, was, I was leading a workshop at this conference on the topic of leadership development. And I started the workshop by making the case that before a church can really begin to develop leaders, the church needed to have clarity on the kind of leaders they want to develop. The, 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 the principle was that standard precedes system. We, we need to know as, as churches, what kind of leaders do we want? And so I appeal to the book of Philippians and, and Paul's example. I said that Paul's example, according to Paul, according to the Bible, Paul's example is one that we should follow. Paul sets a good standard for us. And so I asked the room, 50 people or so, I asked the room, okay, so what was the apostle Paul like? Think about it. What was Paul like? And because it was a workshoppy kind of thing, we had time and I divided the room up into small groups and I had each groups of these people get together and open their Bibles and, and I had them read through the book of Acts and I had them read through the letters of Paul and I wanted them just to try to summarize who is this man, the Apostle Paul? What was the Apostle Paul like? I wanted them to, I wanted them to summarize what's his passion, like what makes this man tick? And after... I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or so in this exercise. The idea is that I wanted to collect some of the small group observations on a big post-it note. If you've been to the foyer, we do this, right? We go in groups, then we come back, and I ask the groups, okay, give me some of your insights, I'm gonna write it down on the post-it. And so we're doing that, again, 50 people. And I said, okay, tell me, tell me. I got my pen ready to go. Tell me, tell me, what, what is the Apostle Paul's passion? And a dear sister raised her hand. I said, yeah, go ahead. And she said, Paul fought 
for women's equality. And I was like, yeah, okay. He believed in that, yep. The other guy speaks up and says, Paul wanted to make America great again. And I was like, I'm not kidding you, there were answers all over the place. Like, it was not going the way that I wanted this to go, okay? <laughs> like, you got the Bible right there. You just open the Bible. There were answers were everywhere. And it's really happened, at least half of it, okay? But here's the thing. I, since that happened several years, I mean, probably twice a week I think about that instance. <laughs> it was, uh, I felt good about the pedagogy, but it just didn't work. And And one of the things it reminds me of is that we can make, we can make good, sound, biblical, and theological arguments. We can on a lot of good and important things. But there's a difference between things that are true and a passion that drives you. There's a lot of good, true things that we see in Scripture, practical, helpful things for how we live in this world, and we should thank God for those things. But there's only one thing that can be an all-consuming passion. And we will never understand Paul until we understand what that passion is. And we see it here in Philippians 1. That's what I want us to look at this morning. It's gonna be most clear in our passage next week, okay? But we see it come through in verses 12 to 18, and we need to know, but how, how can Paul say what he says here? All right, so I'm going to go ahead and summarize for you how I think Paul can say what he says. If I had to put Paul's example in one sentence, like the answer I'm looking for when I'm writing on this post-it is this, Paul cared most about the glory of God magnified through the advance of the gospel. That's that's Paul in a nutshell, I think. Paul cared most about the gospel. He cared most about the glory of God magnified through the gospel being spread and advanced. That was Paul's all-consuming passion. More than anything else, Paul was a theologian, pastor, missionary who wanted the glory of God displayed through people hearing and learning and embracing the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what drove him. And that's what led him to, to see the world the way that he did the way that we find him talking here in verses 12 to 18. And that's what I want to show you. Okay, so what I want to show you in our next few minutes here is three ways, three ways that this passion for Paul shaped the way he saw the world. We're going to observe these three ways, and then we're going to talk about some ideas for how we could follow Paul's example. And I know we're probably like halfway through here, but this seems like a good place for us just to stop for a second and just pray and ask God to help us. I, I was telling the folks before we started here, um, this Philippians is a book about joy, but I mean, it's, it's a challenging book too, okay? <laughs> I feel that in this first chapter. And so my prayer has been for us that God would awaken in our hearts 
hope, like hope in the possibility of increased affections for Him. Like we can be more passionate for God than we are. And I I pray that God would work that in our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we do thank you in this moment for your word and for your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for our brother, the Apostle Paul, and his example. We ask now that by your spirit, through your word, give us a clear sight line into Paul's example. And more than anything, we ask that you would overcome our hearts like you did his with the glory of your grace in the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. All right. Three ways that Paul's passion shaped the way he saw the world. Three ways Paul's passion shaped his outlook. We can see these in the text starting in verse 12. Paul's passion for the glory of God, magnified through the advance of the gospel, shaped, shaped the way he interpreted how he's doing. That's the first. Paul's passion shaped the way he interpreted how he's doing. Look at verse 12. Paul starts, I want you to know, brothers, and we can just stop right there for a minute, and remember that this is an introduction of a letter between good friends. Paul had a good relationship with the Philippians, and as good friends tend to do when they talk, they begin their conversations, they begin their communication with a personal update. How, how are you doing is a question that we ask. Paul wanted to know how this church was doing, which was the job of Timothy and Epaphroditus. They were supposed to bring word back to Paul on this church, and this church wanted to know how Paul was doing, which is what Paul is telling them in this letter. Now, the church at Philippi, they, they already knew that Paul was in prison. That's, that's clear. They, they knew that he was in Roman custody, in prison in Rome. And we know from the New Testament that Paul, he, he faced several different imprisonments. And he, he faced different kinds of imprisonments with different kinds of conditions, including once even imprisonment in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. It's, it's, it's argued that the, the beginning of the church at Philippi goes back to Acts 16 when Paul was thrown in prison. And we read about there the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And in that imprisonment in Philippi, the conditions were rough. It's a little sentence in Acts 16 where Luke tells us that Paul and Silas were put in prison and their feet was fastened with iron stocks on their feet. The best case scenario when it comes to imprisonment would have been house arrest, and that's the condition of Paul's imprisonment in Acts 28. But when he writes the letter of Philippians here, we're we're not exactly sure what kind of imprisonment he's in. We're not exactly sure the condition of his imprisonment when he writes this letter, and in this way, we all are like the Philippian church. Now, we don't know the details. They, they knew Paul was in Roman custody. They knew that he was imprisoned in Rome, but they, they weren't exactly sure what that meant. Now, for sure what they did know more than we do was what Roman custody meant in general. They, they knew here in the ancient world that 
Roman custody never meant a five-star hotel stay, okay? They were more aware of that than we are. I mean, historically, this imprisonment would have been around 60 to 62 AD, right? And, and it, it's, it's a known fact that Roman prisons at this time were absolutely inhumane. And there's just ample evidence all about this. They most likely would have been uh, uh, prisons underground with no ventilation, would have been almost completely dark. There would have been a terrible stench, would have been crawling with disease. Prisons were not built back then to hold prisoners for a very long time. They were just meant to hold prisoners until they were tried or executed. Maybe Paul was on house arrest, which means he would have been, you know, shackled to a Roman soldier in a house. But either way, either way, whatever the details are, we know that Paul was in prison in Rome. And good grief, Paul, how are you doing, man? Like that's, <laughs> we know he's in prison in Rome. The Philippians want to know, Paul, how, how are you doing? That's what they're asking. That's what they're wanting to hear from Paul. Paul, how are you? You're in prison in Rome. And Paul says, to answer that question, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. We would expect that Paul would tell the Philippians about how bad it smells. Or maybe he'd tell them about how hungry he is. Or maybe Paul would tell them about how terribly he's been sleeping. I'll let you know if I'm not been sleeping well, okay? Pretty open about that. Sleep's important. What does he do? What does Paul do here? He's in prison in Rome. Man, how are you, Paul? Let me tell you about how the gospel is advancing. That's Paul here. Understand that his answer does not change his circumstances. His conditions were no less terrible. And if he had the choice, if Paul had the choice, he wanted to be free. He says that in verse 19. That's his hope. His hope is to be delivered. He wanted to get out of prison. So although his circumstances were bad, although he did not like his circumstances, get this, he interpreted how he's doing not through the lens of his comfort, but through the lens of his passion. Kind of like we do. We do the same thing. Which is why we complain as much as we do. I think, I think we in America, in the modern world, I think we also interpret our circumstances through the lens of our passion. It's just, it's just that for us, our passion is our comfort. So if the church at Philippi wanted to know how we're doing, if they're waiting to hear from us, how are you doing? The lens through which we would answer that question is, have I gotten what I wanted when and how I wanted it? That'd be the first thing on our minds. We tend to look at the world this way. 
And we should just be honest about that. We tend to look at the world this way. We live, church, we live in a land of whiners. Whiners. And it is so much the air that we breathe that we whine all the time and don't even realize it. We don't even know we're doing it. For example, a long time ago, like last year, I would go to this coffee shop. I wanted to be a long time ago, but it's not. But I would go to this coffee shop, same coffee shop. I go there the exact same time, the exact two days a week, order the exact same drink. I'd go in and I'd say, I'd like a 16 ounce Americano with light water, which means I want this much room. And I would do my fingers like that, that much room. I'd kind of, in a nice way. And, 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 and the, the good coffee people, they're great people, good, good people. They take my order and, and time it, I mean, over and over again, they would take the cup and they would fill the cup to the very top with water. Even when I'm doing like this, I'm like doing like this. I tried to order it a few different ways, it just, it just didn't work. And, and they fill it to the top and, I, and, and I'd, I'd get it and I wouldn't say anything um, because I don't want to be that guy, you know. Um, so I'd drink it, it'd be fine. But then later on in the morning or in the day, uh, when Melissa would call me, and she'd check in and she'd want to know, how's your day going? A lot of times I'd say, overfilled my Americano again. <laughs> yeah. And it, part of it was tongue in cheek, right? But another part of me was really bothered by it, <laughs> really bugged by it. And in reality, subtly, this is what was going on. When asked how I was doing, I assessed the question through the lens of my comfort. Have I been getting what I want, when and how I want it? Think about it. How often? We assess how we're doing through that lens. Am I getting what I want, when and how I want it? If so, I'm doing great, I'm doing great. If not, not so great. Without even meaning to, because it's the air we breathe, without even meaning to, our passion is our comfort. That's our default. But what if God has some, what, what if God has something better for us? What if we follow Paul's example and our passion was the glory of God magnified through the advance of the gospel? It would not mean that our, our hard circumstances are less hard or less real. 
It also would not mean that we never talk about our hard circumstances. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. We are humans and humans have needs and we should talk about needs because we're, we're help needers and we're help givers. And so we talk about those things together as a church. Later on, when Paul is in prison, he did ask Timothy to bring him a coat and to bring him some books. When Paul writes to the Corinthians in, in 2 Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians in chapter 1 that he despaired of life itself when he was in Asia. Later on in this letter, in chapter 2, Paul's going to tell this church about his anxiety. He's going to talk about his potential sorrow. So we're not talking about ignoring our emotions. I'm not saying that. We're not talking about burying our heads in the sand. We're not talking about being superhumans, okay? But we are talking about being consumed by a passion greater than our comfort. So much so that the question of how we're doing is interpreted ultimately through that passion. It's not about knowing the right words to say. We're going to judge people because of whether or not they use a certain type of jargon. We have, we have no interest in shallow jargon, okay? That's not what we're doing here. We're talking about seeing the world from a heart that has been consumed with God, a heart that cares most about the glory of God. The missionary Jim Elliott, who gave his life for the gospel, he said, famous quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's a brilliant sentence. I think we could say in the same way, he is no fool who interprets how he's doing by what is destined for triumph rather than what is certain to wane. How are we doing? A lot of details we can get into, a lot of details we should get into. I hope you do get into the details. But what if we could be more like Paul and the question of how we're doing takes us to the question, is God being glorified? Is the gospel advancing in this world? Are more people right now hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ? All right, here's the second thing, that's number one. Here's number two. Paul's passion shaped how he understood the impact of his witness. This is in verses 13 and 14. Now Paul said uh, that his imprisonment here, as inconvenient, as uncomfortable as it was, it really served to advance the gospel. And so now we want to know in what way, like how did his imprisonment exactly advance the gospel. And Paul explains that for us in verses 13 and 14. There are two different ways. One way is how his witness impacted unbelievers, verse 13. The other is how his witness impacted fellow believers in verse 14. 
Look at verse 13 for a second. Paul explains that his imprisonment advanced the gospel, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, what is the imperial guard? This would have been Roman soldiers closest to the seat of imperial power. They would have been the soldiers who guarded the palace and who kept watch of the prisoners, the top elite of the Roman army. And then all the rest there in verse 13 most likely refers to other Roman officials who were in and around the capital. It would have been made known to these Roman unbelievers that Paul was in prison for Jesus. Everybody see that in verse 13? That's what he's saying in verse 13. All of these Roman unbelievers knew Paul was in prison for Jesus. And I think Paul is actually saying something a little bit deeper in verse 13. Got to look closer in verse 13. I think it helps for us to know that the word there translated imprisonment in verse 13 could also be translated as bonds or chains. So, for example, if you, if you read from the New International Version, you see the word chains there in verse 13. And if we were to follow the original word order, a more literal way to translate verse 13 is to say, quote, so that my chains in Christ have become manifest to the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. So the key, the key phrase there is, my chains in Christ have become manifest. That's the phrase. So why does that matter? Well, it means that what's new for Paul here is not his chains in Christ. Because that's how Paul understood his life. Paul understood that he himself, he saw himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's how he, that's how he introduces himself in the letter. In, in chapter 1, he says, um, he says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. That's Paul. So what's new here is that because Paul is imprisoned in Rome, his chains in Christ have become manifest in Rome. There's a double meaning. There's a double meaning here to what he's saying. Ever since Paul was saved, ever since Jesus saved Paul, he's been a new person who is bound to Christ. That's who he is. And now that he's in Rome, literally in bonds, in chains, then what has been true about him is now visible. The literal chains are symbols of his heart being bound to Christ. And it's manifest now in Rome. This serves to advance the gospel because Paul understands that his witness to Jesus is not a lamp hidden under a basket, but instead his witness to Jesus, his testimony to the worthiness of Jesus is made visible in the epicenter of the world's superpower. The knowledge of Paul's chains, the sound waves of his witness are bouncing off the walls of the imperial palace. The Roman Empire has been infiltrated, not by a lobbyist, 
not by protesters, but by the talk of a man who is willing to give his life so that more and more people will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only, though, was Paul's witness an impact on the unbelieving influencers of Rome, but it impacted fellow believers too, verse 14. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's imprisonment, his witness, it boosted the confidence of those other Christians around him. It boosted their confidence in Jesus that resulted in them being more bold to share the gospel without fear. We might ask, how did that happen? How did Paul's imprisonment boost their confidence? Well, it was not because Paul made prison seem less bad. They didn't see Paul and think, oh, prison in Rome, not too bad, no. It's because they saw Paul and they said, man, Jesus is that good. Jesus is that worth it. Jesus is worth the risk of what Paul is going through. Jesus is worth that risk to us. And, 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 and he, he's worth the risk because the worst thing that could happen to me would be if they killed me. But if they kill me, that just means I'm going to be with Jesus and the gospel is going to keep on advancing. So really, I just don't think we can lose here. See, Paul understood that what he was going through, he understood that his witness, his example, he understood it was having that kind of effect. And one thing that this means for us, I say this as an encouragement to you, don't underestimate the impact of your witness when you love Jesus more than anything else. I want you to think for a minute about your work all the time you spend at your work throughout the week. Sometimes at our work, there are opportunities for us to tell people straight up who Jesus is and what he did, right? But a lot of times, a lot more times, when it comes to your work, there's just who you are and how you react. There's who you are and how you inhabit your situations. And I want us to learn from Paul's example and to know that wherever it is that you are, be where you are and love Jesus more than anything else and see what happens. See the kind of effect that would have on people. Your witness will have an impact. Here's the last thing I want us to see, verses 15 to 18. Um, and we'll end with this one. Paul's all-consuming passion for the glory of God manifests through the advance of the gospel, shape the way that he viewed other ministries. And I'm not sure there's a more relevant word for us today. Look at verse 15. Paul says that his imprisonment has emboldened fellow believers to preach the gospel, which is good, amazing. But now he gives us the fine print. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. There's two different types of Christ preachers here. Two different types of Christ preachers with two different motives. Verse 16, the latter, those 
who preach from a, a goodwill motive. The latter, they preach Christ out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, though, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Who, who is he talking about here? I've scratched my head about this passage for years. The first thing we should do is be clear who he's not talking about. He's not talking about false teachers. Because we know what Paul says about false teachers, Galatians 1.8, let them be accursed. Ain't got no time for that, right? He's not talking about false teachers here. These are people who are proclaiming Christ. They are talking about Jesus correctly. It's just that their motive, what drives them is selfish and competitive. They were trying to one-up Paul. And, and while Paul was preoccupied with being in prison, while his ministry was stalled, so it seemed, they saw it as a chance for their ministry to take off. Some different theories about the actual details here, but that's the main thing that was happening. They're trying to get a leg up on Paul. I think it's crazy, right, that you're talking, this is the, by, like the year 60, okay? <laughs> This is like early, early, early church. And isn't it crazy the kind of tribalism that we see here? We see it in Romans. We see it in the letters to the Corinthians. It's amazing that already fragmentation, fractures, divisions. You guys know tribalism is a problem in our day, right? It's an issue. A lot's changed in 2,000 years. A ton has changed in 2,000 years. A lot has not changed. And sinful human nature is one that has not changed. It's still the same. And so there were gospel preachers in Paul's day who also were driven by having a bigger social media platform than the next guy. They preached Jesus they spoke the gospel, they said true things, but yet they were driven by the clicks and the likes and the shares, and they sought their own interest. And right away, like as I say that, there's a good chance that our minds are running to some maybe modern day examples and applications of like who in our day is doing that. So I want to just caution you first off, never be quick to think that you know someone else's motives, all right? Don't, let's not do that, okay? I think when it comes to how we view other gospel preaching churches, other gospel preaching ministries, other gospel preaching people, our first thought should be what Paul says in Romans 14, 4, who am I to judge the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, which means it's not our job to know the hearts of all the gospel preaching ministries. It's not our job. But even if, like Paul here, even if we have a pretty good read that so-and-so's motive is bad, 
even if there's some personal enmity between us and so and so, is our passion for the gospel bigger than our egos such that we can cut through the main issue to the question of is Jesus being preached? Like, can we get there? Is the gospel being told? Is the truth about Jesus being spread? And if so, verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. See what's happening here? It's not that Paul is being soft. It's not what it is. It's not even that Paul is being charitable to those who don't like him. It's not what it is. It's that Paul is so consumed with the glory of God through the advance of the gospel, that's what he cares about. That's what drives him. That's the lens through which he sees the world. That's how he sees everything. And I just think we need more of that, man. I just think we need more of that. And I wonder today, I wonder if all the fragmentations and all the divisions that we see in the American church, I wonder if it's less about our real differences and just more about our passion. Like maybe it's because we just don't care enough about the glory of God through the advance of the gospel. What drives us? What drives us? Paul's passion shaped his outlook. And I think our passion will shape our outlook. The question is just what that is. What is the passion? What is the thing that drives us? If we follow Paul's example, our passion would be the glory of God magnified through the advance of the gospel. And okay, maybe. Maybe you hear that and you say, okay, I buy it. I want that. But how do I get it? How do I get a kind of all-consuming passion like Paul? Unfortunately, we don't, we don't have an all-consuming passion for Jesus switch that we can just flip on and off, right? So how does this work? The, the question I'm asking here is how might God answer a prayer that I pray for our church every single day? I pray for our church that God would be our all-consuming passion just to be absolutely overcome with God's what I want for us. And so how might God answer that? How might God do that in our church? Well, I can tell you that it will not happen apart from us being completely overcome by the grace of God. That's the game changer. It's when our own hearts encounter and remember who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done to save us. Like, look, do you know how much he loves you? Do you know how committed Jesus is to your everlasting joy? He's never going to leave you. He's, he's never going to forsake you. In fact, if everything else in your life were to fall apart, if everything else in your life were to disappear, Jesus will stand by you, just like he said by Paul. And the more we get that, the more 
simply that we know Jesus. The more that we know Jesus, the greater our passion for him will be. And it's that passion that will shape the way that we see the world. And that's what brings us to the table. We come to this table each week not on the merits of our passion. This is not a table for the zealous. This is a table for the hungry, for those who know that Jesus Christ alone is our hope. The the bread here represents the body of Jesus, the the cup represents the blood of Jesus. And when we take and eat and we take and drink this bread and this cup, we are saying Jesus indeed is my hope. Jesus has saved me. We give him thanks for that. And so if that's your hope this morning, if you this morning have been saved by Jesus, we invite you to eat and drink with us going to serve the bread first. You can just hold it. I'll come back up and we're going to eat it all together as the church. The body of Jesus is the true bread. Let us serve you.